This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Reconstructionist by Jonathan J. Foster. With so much changing in our society around sexuality, authority, patriarchy, religion, truth, and more, what we need is a book to help us navigate those changes while keeping love at the forefront. The Reconstructionist is that kind of book. Pick a copy up today on Amazon or any other fine digital retailer. The Reconstructionist. People greater than text, mercy greater than sacrifice, and love greater than fear. Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. Welcome back to Reframing Our Stories. This is Kara Haug. I'm glad you have come back here. We took a little bit of a longer time to get an episode out to you. Part of that is because I went home to help my mom recover from surgery. And so I just needed some time. As we all need some time, I am reminding myself continuously that it is okay to slow down. It is okay to say no. It is okay to do what you need to do in order for you to care for yourself. So thank you for your patience uh, for this next episode. I wanted to share with you that if you are in Sacramento, we have a wonderful event coming up at the Haven for Birth. It is called Motherhood Myths. It's a chance for you to come and remember who you are. Often times when we become mothers, we take on a new role as most parents do, but it's like we take on multiple roles at the same time and we can lose ourselves, especially because of the amount of caretaking we're doing. The fact that we are feeding and um, getting used to just our, a new body and how it functions, and that we also went through a lot of trauma with our bodies, and we are often not given the amount of time we need to recover from that experience. And so this is a chance for you to come, and we will talk about the expectations that we are given. We will talk about the myths that we grew up with of how a mother needs to be and what that looks like. So it's a chance for you to just bond with others and for storytelling and a chance for reflection. And that will be Saturday, February 17th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. If you are interested in that, please visit our website, reframingourstories.com under events where you can sign up. We would love to have you and love to talk about this with you and give you a chance to remember who you are. We have other events coming up as well. We'll be doing more puberty classes within the community as well. And there's one thing I wanted to highlight today too, is I have been hearing again from other sex educators how they've been treated badly. And it just really makes me sad. We have sex educators who 
are getting just really mean emails sent to them and rude things are said to them. And I want you to know that most of us here who are sex educators are here to make a difference. We're here to help others feel better about who they are, get to know how their body functions. It is a human right for us to know what is happening inside of our bodies and how they work. It's a human right for us to learn how to love ourselves. And as I tell all of the kids who I teach, I say to them, you know what? You are worth having good relationships. You deserve to have a healthy relationship. And part of that is learning who you are. Part of that is loving who you are and getting to know who you are. So start that process now. You are in relationship with yourself more than any other person. So start to learn how to like yourself. And what does that mean? I also tell them that part of having good relationships is learning how to have hard and awkward conversations. And so I say to them, you are worth the awkward. You are worth knowing that, you know, sometimes to protect our bodies, we have to talk about hard things. Sometimes in order for us to get our needs met, we have to say hard things. That was never taught to me. And I wish it was. I would have been in a different place than I am now. I think it's okay for us to talk about the hard things. And you want to know what, you know, our youth are finding these things out regardless. They're finding out stuff about a lot of sexual content that is beyond their age because of technology. And so it's important for us to address those and then give them the proper information and the accurate information, because otherwise they're going to create their own meaning. And most often it's going to be incorrect. And then when they have an experience, it's going to be not what they thought. And that's where we build shame. So I hope that you can see that many of us here are trying to help create a better world for all of us because we all deserve to have better relationships and a, a sense of knowledge about how our body functions with our relationships and how the brain and the body interact. So that was my just little PSA, I guess, for today. Anyway, I'm really excited about today's show. I've been connecting to a friend of mine who I haven't talked to in a while and who went through the same sexual health program as I did. I had the privilege of getting to be in her company and her name is Dr. Lisa Chisholm. This is a lady who I admire deeply. I admire her because of her genuine kindness and heart for others and because she is so unbelievably smart. What amazed me about Lisa is how she works in a position where she holds space for grief. Dr. Lisa Chisholm is the clinical director of the Oakland Macomb Center for Breast Health. This means she lets people know if they have breast cancer and how to receive care. However, Dr. Lisa also knew of the many ways breast cancer affects individuals and sought out how to learn more and build the programs needed so people with breasts could feel cared for in all areas. Because of this, Dr. Lisa holds certifications in sex education and counseling, through ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexual Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. She is a menopause practitioner through the Menopause Society and in breast care through the Oncology Nursing Society. She has established a dedicated menopause and sexual health clinic, caring for the menopausal and sexual health needs of individuals who have a history of breast cancer or at elevated risk for breast cancer. She has also authored a number of publications, guest lectures at universities across the country, and authored a textbook called The Doctor of Nursing Practice, a guidebook for role development and professional issues. It's in its fifth edition. 
Dr. Lisa Chisholm is an all-star, in my opinion, and I am so grateful that she's with us today, and I'm so happy that you guys get to learn from her. Lisa, I'm so glad that you are here today. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kara. So I just want to get down to it. What you have done, I think, is amazing. I mean, I pretty much was telling everyone how much I love you and admire you. <laughs> and and because you just have, I just feel like you have done so much and have recognized the needs that people have. And so what was the process for you realizing the gap in women's health around the certifications that you have received? Well, it's actually kind of interesting story how I ended up where I am. Um, it certainly wasn't planned. And as my mentor from grad school told me, you don't always end up where you start. And that could not be more true for me. Um, I had no idea as a new nurse where I would end up in this journey. And I'm so happy to be where I am. But it actually was by default. I lost my position. Um, I was in an internal medicine practice as a nurse practitioner. And I had earned my doctorate probably about eight or nine months before. And the clinic I worked for was for a large organization and they ended support to the clinic. So my position was basically eliminated. Mm -hmm. I tried to stay in my hometown um, because I happened to be closer to home. My daughter was young and that worked for me, but I wasn't having a lot of luck staying close to home. So I expanded my search and lo and behold, there was a position at Carmanis Cancer Institute for a nurse practitioner in a high-risk breast clinic. And I had not really immersed myself in women's health yet, but I always wanted to. And I thought to myself, well, this sounds like a fit I should try. So I ended up um, accepting the position, not really knowing what I was going to be doing and also not really being real familiar with breast health. But I fell in love. I fell in love with the institution. Um, I fell in love with the patients and, and taking care of breast patients with breast concerns overall has been so incredibly rewarding and where I've spent the last 15 years. Um, in taking care of this population, I recognized, especially with my survivors, that no one was addressing their menopause needs because mm -hmm. frequently it's either the care they receive to treat the cancer, or they've had to come off of their hormone therapy that puts them either into menopause or these symptoms resurface, things like hot flashes and sweats and vaginal dryness. And no one was really addressing this because they were doing a wonderful job saving their life. But now came quality of life and quality of life matters. As one of my colleagues used to say, we save your life for a reason. So I became very interested in this and I sought out help from a um a mentor and a colleague, Dr. Diane Pace, through the North American Menopause Society, now the Menopause Society, and inquired about certification. And about that year, 2011, I, I joined the organization and became certified as a menopause practitioner. And I started to grow, grow that part of my practice, educate others about what we could do for breast patients for menopause management, a lot of out-of-the-box things at that time. And then it kind of dovetailed because what I saw with my patients was a huge overlap with sexual health concerns. Vaginal dryness, decreased arousal, anorgasmia, and problems like this frequently follow some of the changes that happen to the vagina in menopause. So then I thought to myself, well, how can I help serve this unmet need? And I sought certification through the University of Michigan and met you <laughs> and um, became certified as a sexuality um, health counselor. 
and kind of grew that piece while I was at Carmanis and it became a big part of my clinic. My clinic was then named the, um, went from a transition from the high risk clinic to the women's wellness clinic. And I'd like to think I had a part of that because we were really trying to care for more than just um, their breast health concerns. I was trying to address, especially for survivors, some of their quality of life concerns. So I did that work there um, for about 12 years and then was recruited to the practice I'm in now to kind of duplicate my model in a breast center that is with a large private practice, Oakland Macomb, OBGYN, um, in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And basically they built a breast center suite out and brought me to kind of replicate this model and this role where I work with a radiologist and I do see about 75% of my practice is breast health. And then I also am able to um, provide menopause care and sexual health care and counseling. So kind of brought that model forth, but also now taking care of a well population for some of these needs. And that's what made me think to myself, wow, I'm a breast specialist, but I don't have a certification that matches my expertise. And that is when I sought certification through the Oncology Nursing Society um, and became a, a, a specialist in breast. I have a breast care nurse certification. So that's my journey kind of as quick as I could. <laughs> well, and I think that just represents and speaks to the fullness of sexuality in a way, right? Because I feel like yes. so many people forget that everything about ourselves affects so much of how we function. It affects our relationships. It affects how we see each ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sometimes I think it's like pulling back a piece at a time for us to kind of like recognize that, you know, or for even like the whole population. Cause I often spend a lot of my time in my teaching and workshops to say, okay, so how we feel about ourselves here is actually affecting this part here and I feel like that is actually how our body works. Like something that can mm -hmm. be affecting you on your shoulder could also be affecting you in your knee, <laughs> like, you know, because of how everything is connected. And so. Oh, absolutely. And I think we forget when we're taking care of patients who've had a chronic illness or cancer, they forget that they're not just a cancer patient, but that they're a sexual being. And right. that this, this part, just like you mentioned, this part of them is so very important and vital and unfortunately put by the wayside while they're busy taking care of their disease. Right. And and understandably, but we just can't forget that because mm -hmm. at some point they do recover or at least resume some sort of sense of normalcy. And how do we put that back together with them? Yeah. And I've had a lot of people come to me and tell me where they were in a medical situation or had cancer. It was different kind of cancer. And, but talked about how, it was a, directly affecting their sex life. And these were much older, you know, 70 above patients. And they said it was like the doctors didn't even know how to talk to me about sex. And it was like they didn't even consider that sex was a, that was important to us, that we still yeah. were sexually active. And so I love that you were able to see <laughs> like, this mm -hmm. is important, how they feel and how they participate in their intimacy is really important and Absolutely. needs to be addressed. I guess with that, breast cancer changes our body appearance and so how and how our body feels. So what is the process of people going through this and how do you help with them, help them process this? Well, a lot of times we're talking about 
changes women feel with regard to desire. Mm. Low desire is so prevalent across all age groups. And regardless of your history, medical history, we see this over and over again, where women experience low desire for various reasons. And when women in particular who've had breast cancer are explaining to me how they're feeling, I remind them that they've gone through a loss and they're grieving. And sometimes they're not maybe grieving a body part or they lost a breast necessarily, but things may look different. They may have had a lumpectomy, they've had radiation, and the appearance of their breast has changed. And I think it's really important to remind them that they're grieving. And this is going to impact how they feel about themselves. And it's going to impact how they feel in their relationship. And I, I don't want to use the term new normal necessarily too much, but I do want them to understand they have to readjust. Their partner has to readjust. Sometimes partners are even afraid of, of hurting their partner. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know if I should be touching your breasts. Does this hurt? So I think what's most important is making this a, making this something that folks talk about and realize and accept as part of the normal healing process and re-looking at what does this mean to our intimacy? What does this mean to sexual activity? I think women sometimes put this expectation on themselves, or at least this is what I've seen with my survivors, that they go through treatment, they go through whatever they need to go through, surgery, radiation, to get to the other side of survivorship. And then they expect things to just fall right back into place. And it's just not that simple. Right. It's a process. Mm-hmm. So you deal actually with grief a lot because you are one of, I mean, you're one of the people who tell a person that they have cancer. Yes. So how are you able to hold space for that grief for people? Because I feel like, I mean, we know that the grief is there when they are told that, but you also talk about, but there's grief along the way in multiple other areas too. So how do you hold space for that? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I, I, I really truly loved my work at Carmanis, but one of the things that was so um, inspiring to me that was so important to me was I wanted a space where patients could be seen and told some of the most or probably one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult things they've ever been told in their life, which is you have breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that space where they were told to be an environment where they felt safe And they felt that they could relax, they could take in the information as much as they possibly could. So one of the things I requested before making the move was an office space that I could create an environment that fostered that. So Mm -hmm. my office has soft lighting. I have a writing, a writer's desk, and as opposed to a traditional desk, I have a coffee bar. I have a pink velour couch and Mm -hmm. I have some aesthetically, um, soft things in my office that promote that environment. And when I have to tell someone, when I have to tell a woman she has breast cancer, I and sometimes I'm meeting them for the very first time, I may meet them in a clinic room and introduce myself, but then I bring them and their family members, significant others, whoever they brought with them into my office. They sit on my pink couch. If they want something to drink, we take care of that. And then I have this amazing little fur unicorn chair that I pull up because it's all the colors. (laughs) Um, Then I 
pull it up right in front of them. And I have a booklet that I've created that I go through that helps describe what the pathology report means, why the language is the way it is anatomically and so forth. So that's not quite so daunting. And then I may not know as much detail as what's needed to know for sure what treatment's going to look like, but I at least give them an idea. Because once folks hear that kind of news, the most important thing they want is a plan and they want to know they're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And frequently I have enough information to be able to tell them that. And even if I don't, I give them some tentative plans as to if this, then this scenarios. And we spend time, um, you know, sitting together, taking the information in. Um, then they can take that booklet home with them. It has everything on it that we've written on it that's pertinent for them. But that's the way that I I try to hold space for that, knowing just how difficult that news must be. Yeah. I think it's nice that you were able to think, I mean, like the way that you put the intention into how people are feeling, what they might need, you know, that sense of nourishment. Like I feel like you're nourishing them as they're getting really hard news. Yes. Um, And always in person, I don't give results over the phone. There are rare circumstances when folks are on trips or relocated when we really don't have any choice. Um, But the Oncology Nursing Society um, adopted the SPIKES model, which is in the literature, which is an acronym for helps describing, to help describe how to give folks very difficult news Mm. and S stands for setting. So to me, it was just so important to me to have a setting that fostered, um, just like you so beautifully put, holding space for getting that kind of news. Yeah. When you start talking to them then about more than just a plan and when they start coming to you around other parts of their life, right? Um, oftentimes people are really uncomfortable really to talk about sex with, uh, practitioners too, because we haven't been given, we don't know basically how to do that. Right. Cause a lot of us don't talk about sex on a day to day. And so mm-hmm. how, how are you able to bring up these conversations with your clients around sex? And then what is the major thing that you end up talking to them about? You had discussed with me beforehand about Bassan's sexual mm-hmm. response cycle. Yeah. So do you yeah. tell more about sure. the process of opening the door? How do you open yeah. the door to talk about sex? And then what are some of the major things that you cover um, for people? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, in my clinic rooms, I have a whiteboard and I have to give a shout out to my daughter, Izzy, who's a <laughs> grad student at U of M in nursing, um, because she was in my office one time and and I would draw for patients on the um, the sheet of paper across the exam table. <laughs> and my daughter said, mom, you need a whiteboard. And um, shout out to Izzy. I have a whiteboard in each of my clinic rooms with markers. And I just start out by asking someone, you know, what can I do for you today and see how much they give me. And then we kind of go from there. But the two most common reasons folks will seek help Um, women in particular are pain with intercourse or pain with penetration and low desire. So a lot of my conversations center around that, but I use my whiteboard and I'll come, I'll come right out and ask, what can I do for you? And I may get a little bit, I may get a lot, but what I start off talking to them about, especially around low desire is I will say to them, 
those of us who do this work really look to the models that have been looked at over the years. And I describe what we understand from Masters and Johnson back in the day, and I draw that for them. It's a very linear model. And then I draw my, draw my big circle that is my adapted Bassan, Rosemary Bassan model. Um, and, and Rosemary Bassan developed her sexual, her female sexual response model around 2000. And we feel it pretty much accurately describes what happens for women when it comes to the sexual response. So I will draw this model out. And while I'm doing this and describing the model, I'm careful to not necessarily pinpoint and ask my patient, is this what's going on for you? Instead, mm -hmm. what I say is a lot of women will tell me that they have financial stressors. And we put that in the top part of the model around relationship satisfaction. And I'm drawing the whole time. And a lot of women will tell me they have extended family member issues. Maybe there's fighting going on or there's ill parents that they're taking care of. And I basically list out in the top half of the circle, if you can visualize that up under the relationship satisfaction section, all of the things women have told me over the years that are impacting their life on the day to day. Mm -hmm. And then I point out, to women that next in the cycle is arousal, next in the cycle is desire, and then finally sexual response, orgasm resolution. And I draw the circle and I pay attention to show them the way the cycle works, that arousal precedes desire. And that before we can even get to arousal, we've got this whole half of the circle taken up with everything going on in your life. Mm -hmm. And the aha moment and the realization that comes over my patients' faces over and over again is just, it's so, um, it's rewarding to watch them understand and see how normal they are and mm -hmm. how complex Mm -hmm. a female sexual response cycle is. And then I will sit back and say, what here that we've talked about, what resonates with you? Yeah. And that opens everything up. Mm -hmm. and, and and folks really at that point, they feel comfortable because now I've pointed out to them, this is normal. These are things that we are dealing with as women on the day-to-day. -day, and we don't compartmentalize necessarily. No. These things affect us. They affect our ability to get in the space of, of intimacy and physical intimacy. In particular, if, an, if I have menopausal patients or patients who've had um, induced menopause, we spend some time talking about genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And I draw a vagina. Um, I break it down and I, I explain again this is what women will experience. This is some of the changes that can happen. And then when I'm back to my model, I'll put right before arousal, genital urinary syndrome of menopause or GSM, because women need to understand if you're unable to feel arousal because sex is painful or penetration is painful or arousal is diminished or orgasm is diminished, why would you ever think you're going to move on to desire? Yeah. And again, more aha. Yeah. And so a lot of my discussions with women, either with or without chronic illness, with or without a history of cancer, are really centered around these discussions of helping women understand just how complex female sexual response can be. Because mm -hmm. I think because our society doesn't talk about sex nearly enough, we all hold these expectations again. I mean, like we all know that we get from movies and how things just happen, like, <laughs> you know, spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And we have this idea that we have to look a certain way all the time and have to be a certain way all the time. And we feel a sense of brokenness, or I don't know if that's the right word, 
def defective. Maybe that's the word defective when we're not mm -hmm. operating under what we have been given as the storyline, you know, and, I agree. Right. And so then mm -hmm. like, and I see this all the time in my workshops when I start talking about understanding sexuality and looking at our history and then even how our relationships with caregivers impact stuff, when people start going, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you see this sense of um, shame that they've been carrying, like roll mm -hmm. away. You know? Absolutely. And it's like groundbreaking for a new person. Mm -hmm. It's like you yes. see them start then giving themselves this, that compassion and recognizing like, okay, like there's something more for me. Mm -hmm. And um, this doesn't have to look like everything I've been told it has to look like. And And to your point, I don't have to meet an unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. What I'm experiencing isn't uncommon. Mm-hmm. Frequently, it's treatable. Right. There is help, but more importantly, you're you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Many women experience this, um, and it it gives them permission. I, I I physically watch women sometimes just sit back and and their whole body language they just relax because they're understanding that this is not uncommon and this is this is. Um, something that they can be accepted for. So if someone is listening to this, who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer, or even if they've had it for a while, what is something that you really want them to know? I really want women um, survivors or someone who's just been diagnosed to know that it's okay to speak up if something doesn't feel right, or it's okay to look for help. And if maybe your oncology providers are not the folks who can give that kind of help to you, either seek the help or ask them where they can get the help. Because I, the last thing we want is to save your life and not be worried about your quality of life. Mm -hmm. I think that if I had anything I would want women to understand is what my colleague had said. And I, I mentioned earlier, we saved your life for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's okay to want quality of life. So many times I hear women say, well, I can't ask my oncologist because I'm so grateful that they saved my life. I feel silly asking about my vaginal dryness. And I want women to have permission. They may not be able to address it. They may not feel comfortable addressing it that particular provider, but I want women to have permission to seek that help, that they deserve that help. They deserve quality of life mm -hmm. and there is quality of life after breast cancer. Yeah. So basically fight for what you want or what you need, right? We're so Absolutely. often, so often Absolutely. I think it's hard for women because we've been so dismissed often with some of our symptoms. Yes. And so we feel like, oh, I'm just being annoying. And I just want to, I tell women, I'm like, be annoying. Like <laughs> you're yes. worth that. Like, just go ahead and be annoying. Yes. It's okay. And yes. listen to your body. Right. No, I, we see that in the literature overall, when it comes to women um, in many disease states, heart disease in particular, discounting their symptoms, not seeking help and taking care of everybody else yeah. before they take care of themselves. Right. That. There's also something I wanted to ask you as a menopause expert. One of the things that I have been reading lately too, is that part of some women experience within menopause more, um, or 
what's the word I want to say? Like a difference in, in their breasts. Like sometimes they can feel, um, or they might get mammograms and it comes up where there might be something, but it's not. Is that true? Does that happen with some women in terms of Well, there's a a change couple in of breasts? things can happen postmenopausally. I think women may not realize they can still develop postmenopausal breast pain. And breast pain is rarely related to breast cancer. It's about zero to 3% of the time we understand Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. it's actually related to breast cancer. So most breast pain, when there's an absence of any other physical manifestation of an abnormality like a lump or something else that we would be concerned about, breast pain in and of itself is rarely worrisome. And I think just giving women reassurance about that, especially when women have been treated for breast cancer, radiation, unfortunately, is may keep on giving you um, symptoms later that continue to evolve and change. Hmm. But with regard to postmenopausal breast changes, certainly pain is something women don't realize because they're done having cycles and they don't understand that they can still have breast pain. You still have hormones circulating. You just don't have the levels of hormone circulating. So you certainly can still even have hormonal related breast p
people be confused too about what a lump actually feels like besides of, because sometimes we, especially people with dents have different feels in their breast and texture. And so then what would a lump actually feel like? So I tell folks, if you feel anything that feels different, I think that's the biggest take home is mm-hmm. kind of be familiar with the architecture of your breast tissue. So and if something, them. yeah, if something feels different or not symmetric from the other side in particular, come in because mm-hmm. sometimes what happens is denser breast tissue will organize itself architecturally to feel like something isolated. And it turns out that that's really what it was, was dense tissue. However, if you're feeling anything, it could be sitting in dense tissue and we can't, you you can't appreciate it as much. We do imaging and that's how we evaluate it. So I tell women any change, any lump, even for pain, so we can at least have a conversation and hmm. see if you need imaging. Um, nipple discharge tends to primarily be benign if it's bilateral and mi- milky, both sides and milky, but bloody nipple discharge is sometimes a sign of a papilloma or a growth inside the duct. Those are benign, but we still look into them. Um, so I tell women, any change, any new discharge, any change with your nipple, um, changes on the skin, we're really looking more for things that look almost like a mastitis. Right. Inflammatory breast cancer is something women are frequently afraid of with any kind of change to the skin. And that's only about 1% to 2% of breast cancers. However, if you notice anything, I tell women, come in, even if it's just an exam and a conversation, at least you'll know more what you're looking at, what to look for. And when in doubt, we image. Hmm. That's good. Because I also think people are, you know, again, because we don't want to seem annoying or like, no, I it's okay. I'm probably fine. Right. Like often don't come in or take the time to come in. Right. Because of, and also the fear, right. Around the fear of that. Oh, the fear is huge. I Mm -hmm. always tell colleagues who do different types of practice than mine. I feel that the kind of care I provide is the one type of practice where every woman I take care of, if it's a breast concern, is afraid they have cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And that fear is palpable. Yeah. And, And I think for many of the reasons too, like you said, like I feel, and I don't know if you feel the same, but I feel like there's so much emphasis on breasts and body image for, for women, like from the mm-hmm. time they're little, like how big are your breasts going to be? What are your breasts like? Mm-hmm. So where so much, I think sex appeal mm-hmm. tends to be. And so the risk I think of, of having that happen in terms of the image and sexuality aspect of that, but most importantly, our lives, but it's like mm-hmm. that heavily plays into it too. Of like, will I still be desired Mm -hmm. afterwards, which is right. And the whole body image concept playing into how you feel about yourself and how you feel in your relationship and how you feel as a sexual being. Mm -hmm. It is so impacted for women who who have breast cancer. So since you work a lot with people, obviously with people who have breast cancer, what is one of the main things that you've learned the most? I think the biggest thing I've learned is how much this impacts a woman's life. And women try to be stoic. They're frequently the caretakers in the Mm -hmm. families. They, as you mentioned, don't seek help or seek care. They discount what they're feeling and frequently will feel guilt when they 
actually are even diagnosed sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing that um, I've noticed is women need to be given permission to seek care. They need to be given permission to have quality care and have their needs met. They need to be given permission to ask for what they want, mm-hmm. to ask for what they need, to not settle, and to put themselves first. Right. Yeah. I feel like as a woman, that's really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I feel like yes, we need to say this right now. Women, you deserve good quality of life. We give yes. you permission. Yes. And seek the help you deserve. And good quality care. Yeah. And you I deserve to be heard. For that. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So I know that time is running out for us. So I ask all my guests, what story are you reframing today? I am reframing women being given permission to seek care, to demand good care, to put themselves first when it comes to their body, mm-hmm. to know that they matter. Mm-hmm. And to know that after breast cancer, their quality of life matters yeah, and that they deserve it. Yes. I think that has to be said over and over and over again. So if people, you do a number of things that are amazing. If anyone wants to get a hold of you or ask a question, um, how can people find you? Well, I practice in Rochester Hills, Michigan at Oakland Macomb Center for Breast Health. It's a division of Oakland Macomb Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's a large private practice, probably 20 some providers, nurse practitioners, physicians, nurse midwives, physician assistants. Um, And we have a full service breast center um, within the practice. We have our own suite. So you can seek me um, online through the practice. Um, my email is L Chisholm, C H I S M, at O A M A O B G Y N dot com. Mm-hmm. And I always look at my email. Yay. Yay. And we'll put that in the show notes. And we'll also put down different um, websites that you can go to that offer menopause expertise and care. And yes, the menopause society website. I think Mm -hmm. the website is still the North American menopause society, but the name has changed. Um, Also Ishwish international society for the study of women's sexual health is another excellent resource. It is. Well, Lisa, thank you for joining me. And I learned a lot from you today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It's my pleasure.